Chapter Twelve of the Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Follow the rope. What could it mean? Follow the rope. What rope? Presently, I recalled the cord that had been attached to the parcel when it fell at my side, and after a little groping, my hand came in contact with it again. It depended from above and when I pulled upon it I discovered that it was rigidly fastened, probably at the pit's mouth. Upon examination I found that the cord, though small, was amply able to sustain the weight of several men. Then I made another discovery. There was a second message knotted in the rope at about the height of my head. This I deciphered more easily, now that the key was mine. Bring the rope with you. Beyond the knots lies danger. That was all there was to this message. It was evidently hastily formed, an afterthought. I did not pause longer than to learn the contents of the second message, and though I was none too sure of the meaning of the final admonition, beyond the knots lies danger, yet I was sure that here before me lay an avenue of escape, and that the sooner I took advantage of it, the more likely was I to win to liberty. At least I could be but little worse off than I had been in the pit of plenty. I was to find, however, ere I was well out of that damnable hole, that I might have been very much worse off had I been compelled to remain there another two minutes. It had taken me about that length of time to ascend some fifty feet above the bottom, when a noise above attracted my attention. To my chagrin, I saw that the covering of the pit was being removed far above me, and in the light of the courtyard beyond I saw a number of yellow warriors. Could it be that I was laboriously working my way into some new trap? Were the messages spurious, after all? And then, just as my hope and courage had ebbed to their lowest, I saw two things. One was the body of a huge, struggling, snarling apt, being lowered over the side of the pit toward me, and the other was an aperture in the side of the shaft, an aperture larger than a man's body, into which my rope led. Just as I scrambled into the dark hole before me, the apt passed me, reaching out with his mighty hands to clutch me, and snapping, growling, and roaring in a most frightful manner. Plainly now I saw the end for which Silenza's hole had destined me, after first torturing me with starvation, he had caused this fierce beast to be lowered into my prison to finish the work that the Jeddak's hellish imagination had conceived. And then another truth flashed upon me. I had lived nine days of the allotted ten which must intervene before Silenza's old could make Dejathoris his queen. The purpose of the apt was to ensure my death before the tenth day. I almost laughed aloud as I thought how Silenza's old's measure of safety was to aid in defeating the very end he sought. For when they discovered that the apt was alone in the pit of plenty, they could not know but that he had completely devoured me, and so no suspicion of my escape would cause a search to be made for me. Coiling the rope that had carried me thus far upon my strange journey, I sought for the other end, but found that as I followed it forward it extended always before me. 
So this was the meaning of the words, follow the rope. The tunnel through which I crawled was low and dark. I had followed it for several hundred yards when I felt a knot beneath my fingers. Beyond the knots lies danger. Now I went with the utmost caution, and a moment later a sharp turn in the tunnel brought me to an opening into a large, brilliantly lighted chamber. The trend of the tunnel I had been traversing had been slightly upward, and from this I judged that the chamber, into which I now found myself looking, must be either on the first floor of the palace or directly beneath the first floor. Upon the opposite wall were many strange instruments and devices, and in the center of the room stood a long table, at which two men were seated in earnest conversation. He who faced me was a yellow man, a little, wizened-up, pasty-faced old fellow, with great eyes that showed the white round the entire circumference of the iris. His companion was a black man, and I did not need to see his face to know that it was Thurid, for there was no other of the first-born north of the ice barrier. Thurid was speaking as I came within hearing of the men's voices. Solon, he was saying, there is no risk and the reward is great. You know that you hate Silenza's soul, and that nothing would please you more than to thwart him in some cherished plan. There be nothing that he more cherishes today than the idea of wedding the beautiful princess of Helium. But I too want her and with your help I may win her. You need not more than step from this room for an instant when I give you the signal. I will do the rest, and then, when I am gone, you may come and throw the great switch back into its place, and all will be as before. I need but an hour's start to be safe beyond the devilish power that you control in this hidden chamber beneath the palace of your master. See how easy and with the words the black dator rose from his seat and crossing the room laid his hand upon a large burnished lever that protruded from the opposite wall no no cried the little old man springing after him with a wild shriek not that one not that one that controls the sunray tanks and should you pull it too far down all cadabra would be consumed by heat before i could replace it come away come away you know not with what mighty powers you play. This is the lever that you seek. Note well the symbol inlaid in white upon its ebon surface. Thurid approached and examined the handle of the lever. Ah, a magnet, he said. I will remember. It is settled then, I take it, he continued. The old man hesitated. A look of combined greed and apprehension overspread his none too beautiful features. Double the figure, he said. Even that were all too small an amount for the service you ask. Why, I risk my life by even entertaining you here within the forbidden precincts of my station. Should Silenzus old learn of it, he would have me thrown to the apts before the day was done. He dare not do that. And you know it full well, Solon, contradicted the black. Too great a power of life and death you hold over the people of Cadabra, for Silenza's old, ever to risk threatening you with death. Before ever his minions could lay their hands upon you, you might seize this very lever from which you have just warned me, and wipe out the entire city. And myself into the bargain, said Solon with a shudder. 
But if you were to die anyway, you would find the nerve to do it, replied Thurid. Yes, muttered Solon, I have often thought upon that very thing. Well, firstborn, is your red princess worth the price I ask for my services? Or will you go without her and see her in the arms of Silencia's soul tomorrow night? Take your price, yellow man, replied Thurid with an oath. Half now, and the balance when you have fulfilled your contract. With that, the daughter threw a well-filled money pouch upon the table. Solon opened the pouch, and with trembling fingers counted its contents. His weird eyes assumed a greedy expression, and his unkempt beard and moustache twitched with the muscles of his mouth and chin. It was quite evident from his very mannerism that Thurid had keenly guessed the man's weakness, even the claw-like clutching movement of the fingers betokened the avariciousness of the miser. Having satisfied himself that the amount was correct, Solon replaced the money in the pouch and rose from the table. Now, he said, are you quite sure that you know the way to your destination? You must travel quickly to cover the ground to the cave, and from thence beyond the great power, all within a brief hour, for no more dare I spare you. Let me repeat it to you, said Thurid, that you may see if I be letter perfect. Proceed, replied Solon. Through yonder door, he commenced, pointing to a door at the far end of the apartment. I follow a corridor, passing three diverging corridors upon my right then into the fourth right-hand corridor, straight to where three corridors meet. There again I follow to the right, hugging the left wall closely to avoid the pit. At the end of this corridor I shall come to a spiral runway, which I must follow down instead of up. After that the way is along but a single branchless corridor. Am I right? Quite right, Dator, answered Solon. And now be gone. Already you have tempted fate too long within this forbidden place. Tonight, or tomorrow, then, you may expect the signal, said Thurid, rising to go. Tonight, or tomorrow, repeated Solon, and as the door closed behind his guest, the old man continued to mutter as he turned back to the table where he again dumped the contents of the money pouch, running his fingers through the heap of shining metal piling the coins into little towers, counting, recounting, and fondling the wealth, the while he muttered on and on in a crooning undertone. Presently his fingers ceased their play. His eyes popped wider than ever as they fastened upon the door through which Thurid had disappeared. The croon changed to a querulous muttering and finally to an ugly growl. Then the old man rose from the table, shaking his fist at the closed door. Now he raised his voice, and his words came distinctly. Fool, he muttered, think you that for your happiness Solon will give up his life? If you escaped, Silencius Ole would know that only through my connivance could you have succeeded. Then would he send for me. What would you have me do? Reduce the city and myself to ashes? No, fool, there is a better way, a better way for Solon to keep thy money and be revenged upon Solensis Ole. He laughed in a nasty cackling note. Poor fool, 
you may throw the great switch that will give you the freedom of the air of Okar, and then in fatuous security go on with thy red princess to the freedom of death. When you have passed beyond this chamber in your flight, what can prevent Solon replacing the switch as it was before your vile hand touched it? Nothing. And then the guardian of the north will claim you and your woman, and Solensis Ole, when he sees your dead bodies, will never dream that the hand of Solon had aught to do with the thing. Then his voice dropped once more into mutterings that I could not translate. But I had heard enough to cause me to guess a great deal more, and I thanked the kind providence that had led me to this chamber at a time so filled with importance to Dejah Thoris and myself as this. But how to pass the old man now? The cord, almost invisible upon the floor, stretched straight across the apartment to a door upon the far side. There was no other way of which I knew, nor could I afford to ignore the advice, follow the rope. I must cross this room, but however I should accomplish it, undetected, with that old man in the very centre of it, baffled me. Of course I might have sprung in upon him, and with my bare hand silenced him forever, but I had heard enough to convince me that with him alive the knowledge that I had gained might serve me at some future moment, while should I kill him, and another be stationed at his place, Thurid would not come hither with Dejathoris, as was quite evidently his intention. As I stood in the dark shadow of the tunnel's end, racking my brain for a feasible plan, the while I watched cat-like the old man's every move, he took up the money-pouch and crossed to one end of the apartment, where, bending to his knees, he fumbled with a panel in the wall. Instantly I guessed that here was the hiding-place in which he hoarded his wealth, and while he bent there his back toward me, I entered the chamber upon tiptoe, and with the utmost stealth essayed to reach the opposite side before he should complete his task and turn again toward the room's centre. Scarcely thirty steps, all told, must I take, and yet it seemed to my overwrought imagination that that farther wall was miles away. But at last I reached it, nor once had I taken my eyes from the back of the old miser's head. He did not turn until my hand was upon the button that controlled the door through which my way led, and then he turned away from me as I passed through and gently closed the door. For an instant I paused, my ear close to the panel, to learn if he had suspected aught, but as no sound of pursuit came from within, I wheeled and made my way along the new corridor, following the rope, which I coiled and brought with me as I advanced. But a short distance farther on I came to the rope's end at a point where five corridors met. What was I to do? Which way should I turn? I was nonplussed. A careful examination of the end of the rope revealed the fact that it had been cleanly cut with some sharp instrument. This fact, and the words that had cautioned me that danger lay beyond the knots, convinced me that the rope had been severed since my friend had placed it as my guide, for I had but passed a single knot. 
whereas there had evidently been two or more in the entire length of the cord. Now, indeed, was I in a pretty fix, for neither did I know which avenue to follow, nor when danger lay directly in my path. But there was nothing else to be done than follow one of the corridors, for I could gain nothing by remaining where I was. So I chose the central opening, and passed on into its gloomy depths with a prayer upon my lips. The floor of the tunnel rose rapidly as I advanced, and a moment later the way came to an abrupt end before a heavy door. I could hear nothing beyond, and with my accustomed rashness pushed the portal wide to step into a room filled with yellow warriors. The first to see me opened his eyes wide in astonishment, and at the same instant I felt the tingling sensation in my finger that denoted the presence of a friend of the ring. Then others saw me, and there was a concerted rush to lay hands upon me, for these were all members of the palace guard, men familiar with my face. The first to reach me was the wearer of the mate to my strange ring, and as he came close he whispered, Surrender to me. Then, in a loud voice, shouted, You are my prisoner, white man, and menaced me with his two weapons. And so John Carter, Prince of Helium, meekly surrendered to a single antagonist. The others now swarmed about us, asking many questions, but I would not talk to them, and finally my captor announced that he would lead me back to my cell. An officer ordered several other warriors to accompany him, and a moment later we were retracing the way I had just come. My friend walked close beside me, asking many silly questions about the country from which I had come, until finally his fellows paid no further attention to him or his gabbling. Gradually, as he spoke, he lowered his voice, so that presently he was able to converse with me in a low tone without attracting attention. His ruse was a clever one, and showed that Talu had not misjudged the man's fitness for the dangerous duty upon which he was detailed. When he had fully assured himself that the other guardsmen were not listening, he asked me why I had not followed the rope, and when I told him that it had ended at the five corridors, he said that it must have been cut by someone in need of a piece of rope, for he was sure that the stupid Catabrans would never have guessed its purpose. Before we had reached the spot from which the five corridors diverge, my Marantinian friend had managed to drop to the rear of the little column with me, and when we came in sight of the branching ways, he whispered, Run up the first upon the right. It leads to the watchtower upon the south wall. I will direct the pursuit up the next corridor. And with that he gave me a great shove into the dark mouth of the tunnel, at the same time crying out in simulated pain and alarm as he threw himself upon the floor as though I had felled him with a blow. From behind, the voices of the excited guardsmen came reverberating along the corridor, suddenly growing fainter as Talu's spy led them up the wrong passageway in fancied pursuit. As I ran for my life through the dark galleries beneath the palace of Salensis Ole, I must indeed have presented a remarkable appearance had there been any to note it, for though death loomed large about me, my face was split by a broad grin as I thought of the resourcefulness of the nameless hero of Marentina to whom I owed my life. Of such stuff are the men of my beloved Helium, 
and when I meet another of their kind, of whatever race or color, my heart goes out to him as it did now to my new friend, who had risked his life for me simply because I wore the mate to the ring his ruler had put upon his finger. The corridor along which I ran led almost straight for a considerable distance, terminating at the foot of a spiral runway, up which I proceeded, to emerge presently into a circular chamber upon the first floor of a tower. In this apartment a dozen red slaves were employed polishing or repairing the weapons of the yellow men. The walls of the room were lined with racks, in which were hundreds of straight and hooked swords, javelins, and daggers. It was evidently an armory. There were but three warriors guarding the workers. My eyes took in the entire scene at a glance. Here were weapons in plenty. Here were sinewy red warriors to wield them. And here now was John Carter, Prince of Helium, in need both of weapons and warriors. As I stepped into the apartment, guards and prisoners saw me simultaneously. Close to the entrance where I stood was a rack of straight swords, and as my hand closed upon the hilt of one of them, my eyes fell upon the faces of two of the prisoners who worked side by side. One of the guards started toward me. Who are you? he demanded. What do you do here? I come for Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium, and his son, Mors Kajak, I cried, pointing to the two red prisoners, who had now sprung to their feet wide-eyed in astonished recognition. Rise, red men! Before we die, let us leave a memorial in the palace of Okar's tyrant that will stand forever in the annals of Cadabra to the honor and glory of Helium for I had seen that all the prisoners there were men of Tartus Mors's navy. Then the first guardsman was upon me, and the fight was on. But scarce did we engage, ere, to my horror, I saw that the red slaves were shackled to the floor. End of chapter 12 Recording by Thomas Copeland